Welcome to the Therapy Evolved Podcast, brought to you by Paragon Wellness. Each episode, we discuss the modern behaviors that trigger positive emotional states by tapping into the body and brain's evolved needs, which are so often neglected in modern life. Join us as we talk with experts in a relevant field, as well as everyday people who've experienced better mastery over themselves and their lifestyles through applying the principles of behavior we espouse. And if you'd like to know more, please join us at paragon-counseling.com or facebook.com slash paragonwellness. Thanks again for joining us. to the Therapy of All podcast. This is your host, Ken Knight, and I'm here with Sarah King, who's a research assistant at UNO's CHART program, and that's Center for Hazards Assessment, Response, and Technology. Sarah is currently getting her PhD in urban planning and studies um, at the University of New Orleans, and we're super excited to have her on today. So, Sarah, thanks for joining us, and if you can sort of say a little bit about your background and what kind of brought you to be interested in that background. Sure. Um, thanks for having me, Ken. Um, so, yeah, this is exciting. Glad to be here. Um, I am mostly and primarily interested in water and water-related studies and how that affects the coast and the, the culture of coastal Louisiana and how that will eventually affect the city of New Orleans. So that is my primary focus right now. Um, how I got into that was that I started doing some work in India, um, studying watersheds in rural communities, and that was really enlightening to see sort of rural areas that had very low access to clean drinking water and water for agriculture. So they were able to shape the land in such a way over the course of time that would basically rebuild the groundwater and freshwater uh, supplies so that it would give them, over the course of time, well water and clean drinking water, ways to do that, and then water to use for agriculture. And these were areas that were um, very desert-like, sure. you know, because they had very low access to water. So When I think of India, I just think about the massive population mm-hmm. and, the rap- and the rapid urbanizing that they're doing. And, like, what a great way to be able to project what, you know, America might look like given two, three, four, five generations worth of population expansion. That's a, yeah. That's funny that you say that because that's that's really what got me into into these big, big questions about what's happening. I mean, when you see a country, and first of all, India is like extremely complex, and it's one of the most beautiful places, and also has a lot of a lot of major problems. Um, however, it's it's so extreme in both these these things, but it did bring me to realize you know, yes, it's overpopulated. Yes, there's a lot of health issues. There's a lot of access to to food. Um, there's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of, you know, lack of access to fresh water. Um, however, there are really interesting ways that, that people are going about trying to figure out how to make these things work. But what I saw was, wow, you know, this is kind of a very pivotal point for them in history where they really have to make some changes. Sure. We have a um, lot more, like, screw-up room than they do with a billion people in a smaller place. Right, and I thought, you know, in the way that, that I think that Western academia works is 
we try to kind of impose our teachings on other people and, and, and maybe the history of that is, is really kind of frustrating and conflicted in the history of the Western world kind of going in and colonizing and that's why India basically has a history of, of coming out very poor at the end sure. of the British colonization. Um, and, and I thought about that and I thought, well, why aren't we learning from them? Instead, why why isn't why aren't we learning from other peoples? Then, you know, we we don't necessarily have to go based on this standardized Western way of thinking. I think the Eastern world provides us with with things that we don't necessarily consider day to day, right. and and technologies are non you know natural ways of doing things that we don't necessarily practice, and so yes, that that kind of raised some bigger questions for me. I did a comparison on watersheds in the U.S. and watersheds in India and used India as an example of what we can do in the U.S. Uh, although we don't have those kinds of issues, we can start to think about them now. Before we have them. Hopefully. Right. That's not how we really work here, is it? Yeah. It's not. <laughs> um, and it kind of got, you know, I think that, that humans have this, like, weakness of, of really being in the moment, not necessarily considering the past and not necessarily considering the future. And at the same time, never stopping it's, doing that. Right, but I think that's also really human. I mean, that is survival, but it is also something to really think about. Is when you think about these big picture things, we don't really think that we don't live that long. No, we can't we, think. You know what I mean? No. It's not. It's not possible to really rationalize all these things. Especially if the way the condition causes and conditions of someone's lifestyle set up is hard for them even right now. Mm -hmm. You're not worried about um, the problems of the next hundred years. You have to take care of your own day to day, mm -hmm. and. When you think about like the massive income inequality on the earth, if you make thirty thousand a year, you're in the top one percent of the world. And so, when you think like, who's going to be thinking about? And the people will, but you know, for the most part, who's going to be thinking about how to pre do preventative actions now so the next hundred years don't bring disaster when you can barely put food on the table next week? You know. Absolutely, and I think it's ironic to be someone who's studying these things and also, you know, struggling, you know, like every student or person that, that has a job, you know, sometimes you struggle financially or you struggle with other things sure. as you're trying to be the best version of yourself. And like we were just talking, um, you know, making good choices about the environment or riding your bike to work instead of driving a car. But, but then, you know, out of convenience and out of struggle and out of trying to get through your day, sure. you can't necessarily yeah. do all those things and you at can all do times. you can try to be like an ecological saint mm -hmm. and it's not going to matter if the system isn't set up for you to succeed in doing so and even if you do succeed it won't really make a notable impact no much as you no matter how much you would like it to as far as right and i guess that's um, so not to say don't try <laughs> at least i think but. it's hard to think that way because when you really overthink it you think what you know who am i and what am i doing but then sure. you, you know Every little thing makes some kind of difference and some kind of ripple effect in yeah, some way, right? And it's so easy, but it's so easy to get in that line of thinking, right? Like, it is. <laughs> uh, there's not even any sidewalks in this community. Why should I ride my bike? Or, you know, or I have, you know, I have to take a job that's 30 miles away rather than, you know, 30 blocks. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting how that works. And I think you mentioned like, you know, handling the environment. I forget what what words you kind of use, but. When I think of India, I think of like, I don't know, 10 to 12,000 years of established history. And we've been, like, that is a society that was on the ground level. Like, the moment humans started having societies, they were there, they were doing it. And 
they're doing good work today and they're handling massive problems today. So I guess let's talk a little bit, if you would, about sort of like that, that history of human beings manipulating their worlds. Yeah, um, I mean, I think now it is really harder, at least some of the research that I've read, and I mean, I haven't read everything, but something that I've been interested in is, is that in modern day, it's impossible to find any culture on the face of the planet that hasn't manipulated their environment. Now, to what extent, I think that you could argue Americans are probably one of the worst sure. in terms of exploiting or extracting resources, um, and not just in our own country, but elsewhere. And we were also among the first. So when you have that rough draft, there's a lot of damage done. You know, if, if you're the, the rough draft model of industrialization and everyone else wants to copy it in the same path that you did, it's going to be bad. <laughs> right. So I think, um, I guess this idea of manipulating land kind of came to me after reading someone else's work, um, a former student at UNO who did a dissertation. Um, his name is David Burley, but he did his dissertation on sort of the, the attachment that, that coastal residents of Louisiana have to the land and their self-identity okay. and, and how this, these environmental changes that are happening along the coast have affected their own interpretation of how they see themselves, which is really interesting. Um, and I say that because the, the ironic thing about some of the people on the coast are that they really depend on the ecosystem for, you know, subsistence living, like, you know, fishermen, and that's a huge industry here. But then a lot of them, even in their off time of fishing, will go into the, you know, onto oil rigs mm -hmm. and do that line of work as well. So as we're extracting these things, we're also damaging the ecosystem at the same time. And so that really made me think about you know, how we're manipulating this thing, but we're trying to survive, right? We sure. need this energy to survive. And as we're using this energy, we're also destroying. Making it hard <laughs> to survive. <laughs> exactly. And, and then that's a hard thing, but then, you know, a lot of the people that, um, that David Burley interviewed were sort of really affected by these dramatic changes over the last 10 or 15 years that have happened to the coast. Like, they're losing their childhood and generations of culture and history and all these things that they have connected with so deeply, they're seeing it actively go away. And that's, you know, depressing and, and sad and, you know, yet they still have to survive and within sure. this environment and they, they want to protect it and yet they have to make a living out of it. So really I think that they are seeing a lot of the changes that are happening very directly, yeah. you know. And the most, any kind of ecosystem, right? It's going to be the fringe, the most vulnerable that's going to see it first. And you'd better hope the rest are paying attention because it's not going to stop with the coastal residents. And, you know, when I think about, uh, I think about sort of like the way one might go about acquiring resources and the difference between like, you know, sustainability and sort of like chop shop land ownership. And, you know, it's not a very difficult thing to imagine. I have no environmental science background um, that if you use the resources beyond their rate of production, you're going to get an element of diminishing production. Mm -hmm. It's not really that complicated, right? If you have 
10,000 antelope in one area and you start hunting them faster than the 500 they make a year, it's not really, <laughs> doesn't take an extensive background to understand that eventually there's going to be less and less antelope. And you, know, you, you multiply that idea but, you know, by fish in the water, uh, trees to cut down, you know, topsoil to use up for plants, you know, and it just, it's so easy to see this problem. I think everybody that's walking around on the earth at least has some measure of understanding that this is a problem. I'm not going to say everybody, you know, there's always people who deny it, but it's not, it's not hard to see, I guess is what I'm getting at. Right, and I mean, especially with, within the coastal Louisiana, it's, you know, now there's a massive amount of money, ironically, from the most money from BP, yeah. um, from the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, there'll be $16 billion over the next 10 years being put into restoration, and you really have to ask yourself, or at least think about it in a way of, this is the most money that's ever been put into restoration here. Mm-hmm. And it came after... Someone messed up. <laughs> exactly, this huge and mistake that we made. Well, it required, um, it required somebody to become so liable with their mistake that some other entity could force them to divert their resources to this project. That I'm sure they have 16 billion other things they'd rather put that 16 billion dollars to than helping some community that they're pulling the oil out of their behinds. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, and it's also, but it's it's not a bad thing that that we're doing restoration work, no. and so you have to really question. You know, this is like a lot of good work and a lot of scientific experiments that will be done to try to see what works. And then when you really think about that too, it's can we fully restore? Sure, probably not. It's kind of like I don't think so. I mean know, I don't think I think that's But you know, can we learn can we learn from our mistake? Hopefully people get better at it in the right. future than we have been in the past. Or can we figure out a way to balance the ecosystem better? You know, is there a way to have some kind of stasis? Yeah. I don't know. If we're still taking that energy it should I be, I mean, if, if the idea of a budget holds in any other area of life, why wouldn't it hold with the existence of natural resources on the planet in which you're living? Right. Spend. And without those, they impact the human in the ecosystem. So we depend on that. So it's, you know, how do we find, I guess, how, how do we figure out how to make this work and sure. going forward with a lot of population rise and population growth and development in urban cities and, you know, continuation to depend on oil and the fish and the ecosystem. And it's interesting, right, because we can, we'd be one of, I don't know, how many thousands of people droning on about how, there's a problem, guys, (laughs) but there's so little talk about, let's actually take an inventory of what we have versus what we use. Let's maybe figure out how we can dial back that and dial up this mm-hmm. and make sure that we're not operating on like deficit earth spending so mm-hmm. to speak so that that makes anything about what we had mentioned in our conversation about basically okay so we were inventing some amazing technology and we're making moves forward as far as health and we're living longer <laughs> as population and you know we're able to grow more and this is seen as maybe progress, but maybe it's not. Sure. Well, you know, when you think, progress is such a loaded word, too, because, and, you know, not anybody who's listened to pre- uh, previous podcasts know I'm not a social constructivist guy. I don't believe in postmodern ideas over 
overwhelming physical realities, but when someone says progress, what they're doing is they're taking ownership of how you should feel about what they're doing or what they're pushing. So it's like, it's progress to keep chopping stuff down and gutting the land and pumping nitrogen from the air into the dirt, and it's progress to keep, um, you know, farm raising fish until we, like, destroy all the value in the rivers and all this other stuff. And it's progress to make eight billion people in a world that maybe shouldn't hold more than five. <laughs> and so it's like you can't, as long as someone says progress, you're not, you're, you're now condemned for going against that, right? You're, you are uh, regressive. You are, you know, if you don't agree with me, you're not, you know, you're holding up progress. Yeah, and also, you know, what does progress mean? It means we're talking about human survival. Mm -hmm. We're sure. not talking about the extinction of creatures. <laughs> we're not talking about, you know, ecosystems that are losing coral reefs. We're talking about human progress. Yeah. But at the cost of what? Well, I mean, even if you don't care about any other species but your own, and even if you don't care about any other member of that species but yourself, there's still incentive to care about this cancerous capitalism, you know, it's metastasized, it's, it's in all the organs, you know, it's, um, there is a limit to what can be fed upon before the organism collapses. Right. And everybody gets, if they don't get it directly, there's that nagging, unspoken, collective anxiety about it, at least. Right. And what was it the, that happened recently, the, is it the, the doomsday clock, the clock that they just changed to... I don't know anything about Two it. and a half minutes... Um, it's, uh, I forget what it's, I think it's called the doomsday clock. I said, maybe if I sound really stupid, but it's basically like the most apocalyptic thing that these scientists started in like after World War II. And anytime okay. things get dangerous in the U.S., they kind of change the time on this clock so to it's midnight. it's kind of like a, a standard and poor credit rating for how bad you're trashing the earth. Not just the earth, but like politics and like yeah, all these gotcha. things, but in the same vein of, of this of this like ticking time bomb and sure. you know we do acknowledge it but what are we doing right you know, you know um, and it's interesting right because when we could talk about this it's like as long as you have this metastasizing I guess we'll call it like unilateral control of earth's resources by the global economy rather than some sort of expertise or you know mm -hmm. effective budgeting or distribution then you're going to have that, and it's only going to grow and grow and grow, right? You, you can hold whatever stance you like, but if that person's got to increase their gains from last quarter by another 7%, it has to come from somewhere. They have to scratch and dig at something to find it. Right, it has to keep feeding, right. you know? Yeah, <laughs> it has to keep growing. Um, and that's not to say I think like some kind of socialism is the answer. I don't, I'm not making a political statement, just more about the nature of human consumption patterns in the physical terrain we're in. You know? mm -hmm. um, and so we know there's a limit to this stuff, right? And what does progress mean? And I think about uh, Charles Epstein. He wrote Ascent of Humanity. It's a very good sort of um, outline of the environmental damage and problems that are happening in the world. But it was ju it's just stopped at being an outline of the problems rather than a, hey, let's try something else. And he talked about how it's sort of like poetic, but human progress, as we're air-quoting it, is based off of technologies that came from fire. Mm -hmm. And that may seem a little, you know, 
little woo-woo, but when you take it back to um, Paleolithic eras and people are creating fire and hardening tools and burning down brush and all sort of stuff, well, then we created the first energy economy with fuel. So in order to stay warm and to live in environments that maybe you shouldn't be living in as a uh, species or a section of a species, chop down more woods. And as long as you can go back and forth to this source of fire, you can cook your meat, you can stay warm enough not to die, you can have a permanent camp. And so that turns into, well, let's throw some ore into that and make swords, and let's do more of that, and let's make um, steel ships, let's make towers, let's make factories, and so let's make um, atomic bombs. And so it's all, you know, we've gotten so sophisticated where we started with, like, flint striking to get dead wood alight in a controlled manner, and now we're manipulating subatomic particles. But it's all like this sort of mentality of what can we chop up, burn, and smash together and destroy to create a side effect of energy that we can use just for right now. Right, and that's that's super on point. Um, I think that that's like a parallel of some of my dissertation work, what, you, what you've just described, because there's an anthropologist, Leslie White, who talks very much about, you know, he, he was very on the... You know, ahead of his time in, in being a sort of a historical ecologist or environmentalist, anthropologist. And his theory is that, you know, humans are consuming energy to survive. And the reason they need this energy and the reason they consume it in this way and in this need is to procreate. And so as we procreate, we create more, which demands more energy. And so he kind of links it into going back to Karl Marx into essentially like being the, the introduction of capital created this issue that you're describing like sure. at an accelerated pace like not yeah. just the fire energy but it introduces like well it takes the human like out of the equation when you introduce this like labor sure that's for this exactly and takes us out of the natural world in a way and this is like his his theories kind of came out like after industrialization, but you know I, I think that there is a lot of truth in that. I don't think that's necessarily it's it's very kind of it's more black and white than I would like to think about it. I'd like to think about this as more complex than just what what I described. But I mean um, I can't see like you know I'm always looking to tease the angles and see what I can't find from the devil's advocation, but I can't see another way to describe it. I just can't find it. You know, it, it is, like, even industrial age economists, like Adam Smith, the guy who wrote uh, The mm -hmm. Law of Wealth or something like that, or, it's, um, or The Wealth of Nations, I'm sorry. Horrible with my um, verbal bibliography today. But <laughs> he talks about how if you are going to make pins, like little metal pins, it would be inefficient for one human being to switch from making the little ca uh, plastic caps to making the metal uh, points and shaving them off and creating a thread hole and then sharpening one end and then putting them together when you could have five humans doing nothing but repetitively doing the same thing, and you make out a whole lot more, right, in the same amount of time than one than the same number of humans could have done if they would have each made a pin from start to finish. And if you take that idea of the fiery consumption from dead wood to nuclear devastation, you know, seven billion people each specializing on the creation of means and waves of utilizing and spreading energy consumption can do that a hell of a lot more efficiently and destructively 
than seven billion people starting from flint and steel and going there up, trying to get up to nuclear reactors themselves. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the time frame that this, all of this has happened and these major changes since industrialization is, is pretty short. You know, in the history of the human being, like it's it's all been happening over the last hundred years, like these ma- massive changes. And I guess it begs that question, right? Of like, okay, if you look at this as sort of a Moore's law, technological advancement, kind of growth, consumption of stuff, and expanding based on not only population but lifestyle expectancy in the population, it doesn't take a genius to know that the jig is up. <laughs> Like, you know, what do we have, 20 years, 50, 100 if we're generous at this rate, Uh, maybe, you know. And I guess it's like, if we're getting really out there, I could see people using space as the cop-out of like, oh, we'll just start mining asteroids and stuff. Well, okay, great, where are you getting the biomass? Where are you going to get the um, production of oxygen? Because any machine that could create elements costs way more than some other type of material. So, you know, like, before you try and go cop-out and, pawn it off on a future society's technological expertise, maybe maybe think it's not going to happen and then cover your butt anyway rather than pawn it off. You know? Yeah. I don't know if that was too far out there. But no, yeah. I, I'm trying to follow. <laughs> it's making some sense. So, But it, I guess it's just this idea that people think um, it's going to be okay or some smart person other than me will fix this problem. Right. You know, and they'll do it before it's too late. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> It'll be fine. I mean, my kid's generation is going to be totally fucked, but, you know, we're fine right now. We'll be I feel like that's how people think. Yeah. Like, sorry, kids. Or, you know, um, yeah, the old neighborhood I grew up in might be like an oil slick sludge right now, but if I can just get behind the right suburban gate, you know, it won't affect my kids. Right. Your kids will be, like, choking on oil-soaked ducks, but, you know, mine are okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any kids, people. I'm just, you know, Me making <laughs> But, uh, so it's interesting when we think, like, what is progress? And then, you know, the natural thing is, like, well, what else could it be, right? If we're sitting here complaining about um, people striking flint and steel leading up to nuclear devastation or, you know, space expansion, using up biomass, it's really easy to kind of wag our fingers at that. Well, we don't really have an answer to break it. You know, like, what does that look like? And, you know, if you want to take that down to its poetic stuff, I think about the fire part. It's like, okay, what, what does water-based technology look like? Would that look like some kind of, um, you know, extensive, instead of factory production materials, maybe you're talking like a guided algae production for your manufacturing base, and more oxygen tends to be a side effect? I mean, that'd be kind of cool. Or, you know, it's like, what are some, I don't, I'm just projecting here and guessing, but I'm sure you could do that too. This is fun to do, I think. But, like, what are some other ways we can, like, kind of, Let's back up to the idea where you have to set everything on fire to live off of it. Like, what does it look like to grow stuff in ways where it's only better and it's only, you know, you're not tearing it up to use it at all? I wonder if that's possible. And I think that that there are possibilities like that, and I'm sure that there are people doing studies like this, but I think the question is that, that, you know, it's pretty obvious that our society values money and capital growth, and so, you know, these projects... Although they might be funded, they're probably not being heard of. They're probably not being as funded or yeah. as researched as they could be. Sure. Well, if you if you did manage to change the paradigm of how materials are extracted, developed, utilized, and distributed, then you would l- literally change who is benefiting from that. 
And that's not really something anybody who's currently benefiting from wants to hear. You know, it's right, and it's too too much of a long-term, big picture. Right, that's approach. to the detriment of the interest of people who are that have money. Right. So why would you change it if you're in that position? And if you're not, then you can't change it anyway by yourself. So it's a neat little scam that's being set up, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's it's interesting. Like, so. And yet, you know, we're we're connected to the environment, right? And I'm, I'm I just can't help but think of like society in this parallel between maybe like a cancerous growth taking over um, an, a set of organs versus like you know L.A. sprawl. You know, and even if you I've heard it remarked that if you are flying over a major metropolitan area like you're flying over the Hudson or you're flying over like South California or whatever, you can almost see it. And like the, the sprawl of it, it almost mimics um, tumors metastasizing with the little urban, you know, the interstate spreading out and the little like strips of buildings, like little tentacles growing on the mass. You know, so it's an interesting way to look at it. Not that I'm saying humanity needs to be wiped out, but you know, there's, it, it's an undeniable parallel. Like, wow! It's if you look at Earth as a cell, as if it was a cell, it's definitely covered in some parasitic growth. Right, and I, I, I mean, I agree in, in terms of like seeing, viewing things that way because I, I tend to view things a little on the dark side. Mm. But you know, I was some thought that I had the other night, which is like, I, I might sound really stupid, but I don't. Like smoke I just weed. call the human race cancer. Okay. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> I don't smoke weed that much, and when I do, I turn into like a twelve-year-old. Okay. So I did, and it was really, it was like really, probably not fun for my friend that I was hanging out with <laughs> because I just got really deep, yeah. um, super lame. But you know, I, one of the things I brought up is because I, you know, I think about these things all the time, like what you're describing, and and it's like, you know, as humans, we think that we are these amazing creatures that are smarter than anything else that exists and you know we, we are the rulers of the planet it's all about us um however like we don't know that yeah. i mean who's to say that trees and animals and nature and everything else that exists is just not just as important it's just like well maybe that's what we see as not on an intelligent level as we are mm -hmm. but maybe they know how to survive better than we do yeah, well, not even that, but that, you know, maybe we're all f coming from that same thing that you're describing. Like, if you take a city that looks like some kind of organism, and then you break that into everything else, as far as, like, we're all made of the same matter, yeah. you know, why do we think that we can kill that tree for no reason? You know what I mean? Like, sure. like well, where does know, that come from? Well, and it's interesting, too. Like, you have to imagine that a macrophage has no qualms about the cell it's destroying. Oh, that's just a mitochondria. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's not important. Right, and I think that's where humans try to rationalize. Well, well we think about these things. Yeah. We understand these things. Sure. I don't think we really understand them fully. Yeah, or maybe or there's, well a, enough. there's an incentive to not looking too hard for, like, your own sort of moral relaxation, I guess. But, and you, you look at this, and I think about this, and what other, every other beast out there kind of serves a pretty obvious ecological purpose. You know, mm -hmm. 
it either grooms the ground or it's eaten or it eats and prevents other things from overgrooming the ground or it produces oxygen or, you know, um, what do we do? Right. Like what value do we, <laughs> we're like the spoiled child of the earth. We don't do our chores. Yeah. That's what I'm saying <laughs> though. Like why, why do we think that we're better than, than anything that's yeah. alive? Like, I think we're pretty bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's, we definitely... As a species. Yeah, we definitely don't clean our room. Yeah. You know, we, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but then you have to look at it this way, right? And I guess this is kind of goes in this collective maturity and the idea of, like, what does a child think of their parents? Like, a young child thinks that the parents' only existent purpose of existence is to serve their immediate needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and as that child might grow up and mature, they start to be- hopefully become a little bit more conscientious of the fact that there's a symbiotic relationship, hopefully. We're that spoiled teenager that's just gimme, 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 and throwing stuff on the ground and tearing up the house. We're not uh, picking up a single dirty plate, mm-hmm. and we just think we're so awesome, and our, you know, our parents are so stupid, and our house is so stupid. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way so. to put it. <laughs> and we're all, I mean, we're all that same yeah. thing in levels of degrees, you know. Yeah. There's there's humans that are I think better than that. <laughs> sure. I mean, if we're talking about like a law of uh, you know what's it what's it called? Or I should know this term, I just took the classes, but um, you know, drifting towards the mean. If you if you take the, the bell of the curve, that's mm-hmm. kind of where we're at collectively. Yeah. You know. It all evens out I think. So I guess, you know, that question comes with, like, we're, connect- we're not getting out of the house anytime soon. You know, we're, you know, we're not flying off into space in large numbers saying, peace out, Earth, we'll call you when we need our laundry done. Um, you know, can you pay our asteroid tuition? <laughs> <laughs> we're not doing that anytime soon. So we're stuck in the same house. We're not leaving Earth um, en masse at any point in the near future. So how do we clean up this crap that we're connected to that we trash so much? What do we do about it? Like... I don't know if there's a good answer or even an answer. I I think that I think that being conscious of it and having a connection to the environment or or, or just like you and I having this conversation, you know, people talking about what's happening, being aware of what's going on around you and and not just the environment, but you know, other people, you know. I feel like it's really crazy times right now and and people are upset about things and anxious and worried about so many different things, stressed out about so many different things. Sure. Many of which designed to create that anxiety to distract, of course, but, mm-hmm. you know. And also, you know, I mean, I think we have to be, we have to remind ourselves, like, you know, it's, today's, maybe it is the end of the world, but it's, like, things aren't the end of the world. But I think that, um, I think that just engaging and learning, just understanding, trying to understand how everything works in, in whatever capacity people are interested in and all different things, I think is, is really powerful. Like, I think it's important to keep learning. I think it's important for, for people to be nice to each other in a very basic way. You know, if you're trying to understand, I think the more people try to understand and gain knowledge in some way, they tend to maybe have empathy for other people 
And that's a really positive thing that, that we, I mean, as far as humans go, that's something we need to work harder on. Sure. Uh, you know, and then, but then that part of my mind that's like, it's going to be like, great. Uh, it reminds me of a little quote, those who, study, who don't study history are doomed to repeat their mistakes. Those who do study history are doomed to watch other people repeat the same mistakes. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it's not entirely hopeless. We, do, we are dedicating some of our collective human resources to fixing these problems, even if we have to kind of come at it from uh, a surprise attack on society, as we will. We have to be creative. And part of your initiative, right, you're with the Center for Hazards Assessment and Response and Technology. So it's not like people aren't working on this in some fashion. So what do you guys do um, in your role that's sort of like helping prepare us for this as a human species? Well, a lot of the work with this organization is, is working, obviously, in the coast and with the state um, to really try to understand these levels on a, on a, in a, hum, like a humanistic way. So um, doing one, I'm working on a project called the Community Rating System, where um, communities essentially try to uh, meet certain standards or try to do certain activities um, as they're located in floodplain areas. Um, these activities will sort of improve like infrastructure or levee systems or development projects in ways that will um, lower their insurance. Awesome. So okay. there's an incentive to really work on these things and, yeah. and to kind of be prepared, to plan and be prepared for flooding or storms or hurricanes, um, to kind of incentivize communities to plan for these things. To so sort of like re-empower them at, at the local level, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. And, and also, you know, I think it's good because a lot of the stuff that I'm, I'm learning, I mean, I just started this job recently, but, you know, in, in areas like major cities and, and even in smaller communities, when you're developing and, and, like, we're talking about population growth and these transportation issues and trying to find solutions to those, um, there really have to be open spaces in order for this water to collect or um, watershed areas that, that really need evaluation and how this water system needs to work and flow in a certain way because it's going to affect the population. And as we become more populated and sea level rise and we still have same storms but they're maybe getting stronger because of these changes, sure. we really need to think about how we're building on them, especially yeah. um, communities and this city that's, that's very vulnerable to these changes. And I was just about to think, like, when you're dealing with someone on an individual level, it's like, okay, great, you want to block off all this land to make sure that we don't have another Hurricane Katrina event. Great. But that might not happen for 40 years, and that's a, that's a buck to be made today. <laughs> so what do you, like, how do we interdict that? And I'm, I'm asking you, like, as if you can wave your hand and in, implement all smart policies, but let's say you were in charge. Mm -hmm. What might be a way that you kind of prevent that sort of short-term myopic approach from damaging everybody? The way that I'm trying to understand these issues and what you're saying is, is that I think that what I described earlier about people in the coast that are living off these and generations of people living off these coasts, I think that they have more knowledge than, than, than some scientists or that academics or that politicians have. Yeah. I mean, I think that we don't give 
people who have been living in, in these areas um, enough credit for understanding their environment. It's like, great, you did a six-week study, I've been living here for 60 years. Exactly, or, yeah. or three generations, you know, right. and so living off the land is really important. Now, you know, there is that contradiction of, of working on an, on an oil rig or something like that, but, you know, that's survival. But I also think that in what you're saying, if I was in charge, I think it's really important for people on a local level to understand what a scientist is saying. And for a scientist to understand what a community member is saying oh, that, and how to work together. That's something I think about all the time. Um, you know, we're both getting our PhDs. And when you reach this point, the material becomes so obscure and arcane and undigestible. Almost unreadable. Yeah. No one wants to read it. <laughs> no, we don't want to read it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to think, like, so where do people get their information? Well, you're not getting it from peer-reviewed neutral parties anymore. You're getting it from the conglomerate that wants to feed you a certain set of ideas. And to break through that requires, really, it requires, to get factual information that's verified by other people with no interest in it, requires a skill set just to read that stuff. Oh, yeah. So, like, science communicators are going to be critical as we try to become a more rational society. Right, and I mean, I'm... I'm trying to understand these things from both sides uh, because I don't see myself as a as a traditional like academic, mm -hmm. and a lot of things about academia can become frustrating. Um, just like any sort of institution, there is a sort of way to do things, and yeah. and now you know in a lot of fields people are are pushing towards more applied work, you know, yeah. or what have you. But um, I just really believe that a lot of these a lot of these big questions we don't really think about the people in certain areas like India or, um, you know, rural populations, tribal populations, coastal populations as being a resource. And I think that we're starting to, but we have to work together. Yeah. Like you're, and, and I agree, like, some of this um, research is great, um, and there's a lot of, you know, money going into science on the coast and science that is trying to understand these, these major environmental changes. However, I don't think we're having a conversation about what the human impact is, and sure. we really need to to recognize, at least right now, what's happening in coastal Alaska, you know, what's happening in Bangladesh, yeah. what's happening in French Polynesia, all these places where they're seeing this stuff happen very dramatically, and yeah. it's, um, you know, they're having to relocate or resettle, and, and that's a whole huge, massive project. And then also, like you were saying earlier, in the beginning especially, like, what did they get right? How did they adapt? How did they deal with it? What did they do differently that's working? You know? And, and I feel like that's, we're on the cusp of trying to learn how to make those decisions, you know, because what, you know, let's, obviously Alaska's coast is going to be pretty different from the Gulf Coast and all sure. the states along the Gulf Coast in, in terms of everything. So what Alaska does is com going to be completely different than what Bangladesh or anything, you know, I mean, sure. and every country has its own culture. But let's so. say Alaska goes through it, and I don't, I'm not an eco-scientist, this is probably all whacked out, you know, terrain-wise, but let's say Alaska goes through something, they figure it out, and then Norway has the same issue 10 years later, they can talk. Right. You know? Right, and I mean, I think that's, at least, you're getting to what I'm trying to figure out in my dissertation, which is, you know, I don't know the answers, but let's try to figure out what's happening in these different places. And 
and let's talk to each other about it and let's try to plan for it because, you know, I mean, like you said, we can't maybe answer questions for 50 years or 100 years from now, which is, you know, you could look at all this research that I read about, well, the sea level is going to rise X amount 50 years. Well, we don't really know that. I mean, sure. we can predict that. Yeah. But we need to, you know, what are we planning for? There's really, there's not, there's not as much information out there as there should be right now. And, you know, I think even less, too, it's, we have this issue where, like, I don't know about you, but to find research in my own field is a headache. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of good stuff out there that no one else has heard of because no one else has read that particular journal of the 10,000 journals out there on your topic or your profession mm -hmm. or the things related to your profession. And I, I think, like, how we synthesize practical information in the future is going to be really important too. How do we yeah. connect it and at a speed where because the speed of research, seven billion minds working on a problem, that's a pretty fast computer processor. And we're just like we're not putting it together right. We gotta you know we gotta join that a little smarter. Right, and I think you and I know that doing anything like going to the post office, like doing anything that's really a bureaucratic kind of like messy way of doing things mm -hmm. is, is, is not the way we want to live. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of like some, something that I think is at least a rational way of thinking and the practical way of thinking, like you're describing is like, okay, so let's say that you live in a floodplain and, and you're, considering what you should do and how you should plan for things and like are you going to go try to work with a very bureaucratic process and have to deal with all of that to understand or get you know assistance or are you going to talk to someone in your community who has done some planning who has you know some resources who has you know information and that you know on a personal level I mean I think that that is really important Absolutely. yeah and I think it, it's not only sustainable practices with our materials, but it's sustainable knowledge, too. It's sustainable use of knowledge. And I know we're coming tight on time here, and I want to completely shift gears on us. And so this podcast is Therapy Evolved, and the purpose of what we do is it's sort of using the principles of evolutionary psychology to teach us how to have flexible minds and you know, adapt our lifestyles for the utmost of success, happiness, and self-mastery. Uh, using science, yay. And part of that, you know, one of the things that sets the, and we're fun, you know, we're, we're created by Paragon Wellness, and what sets Paragon Wellness apart is it's a psychotherapy practice where fitness training and nutrition are paramount alongside meditative practices. And that's sort of, these are sort of like the pillars that take psychotherapy to the next level. Mm -hmm. And I know that we talked a little bit about your experiences. How have you employed or utilized physical fitness, nutrition, or reflective practices to sort of enhance yourself? I mean, I think I, I agree with that practice because I think all those things really, they speak to each other, you know, and, and just as a person who's like aware of myself, I know when one is out of whack, I guess, yeah. and so, um, you know, if, if you're eating poorly or not getting exercise or or just not getting what you need, just not having time, not sleeping, not yeah. maybe not meditation, but at the very least having a moment to yourself, then you're going to be kind of irritable or you're not going to be in the best place. Um, but I was describing before we started the podcast um, my experience as an athlete, and I, I've, I was an athlete at a really young age. What was your sport? I was a volleyball player. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Best sport ever. So much fun. Um, 
and I, you know, I was, I was like into everything, but, um, did struggle when I was a teenager from like age 15 to 19. Um, I had really bad migraines and like some depression and it was, it was really hard and I didn't really know what was going on, but, um, and we moved a ton growing up. So it was like, you know, it was kind of like, you know, trying to figure out my identity, I guess, like that. And It makes sense that you're studying ecology, <laughs> not being able to have ever had in your childhood maybe a, a long-term adaptation to ecology. Yeah, kind you of. Know, it makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. Sort of, yeah, definitely. Um, but I think one of the things that was really positive in my life was being physically active and being part of a team, and and that was my expression, you know, because sometimes when you're a kid and you don't really understand what's going on or you don't fully understand sure. yourself yet. There is this physical way of getting that out, you know, and, 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 I, and, a, and I'm an artist too. So like that was part of it as well. Maybe the more spiritual side, but I think that was really important. And then now as an adult, still really important. Like I have to get outside. I have to be in nature. Sure. Um, and those things have to speak to each other. I definitely value nutrition like you're describing. And I definitely value all of those things, um, because I think it does kind of help. It's a coping mechanism. Sure. Well, you know, and the thing, the things that we're learning about integrating psychology and biology these days, even from 10 years ago, it's a world apart as how things are approached. Um, now, you still have some people doing archaic things because they've just been in the business so long and never changed, but that's a community that's going to fail to adapt in the future, right? Mm-hmm. And it's so, it's infinitely complex and infinitely simple. Mm-hmm. Emotions are chemistry. Um, thoughts are electricity in the simplest way you can put it, right? And if you experience negative emotions, physical activity resets the chemistry. Mm-hmm. And I've heard people like, they try to think themselves out of bad chemistry over and over and over. Like, why is this the way it is? Why is this happening? So on and so forth. It's like, stop talking, stop thinking. There's nothing you're going to say out of your mouth that's going to alter the trillions of chemicals attacking your cell walls. Go for a jog. Go look at a tree. Go breathe in some clean air. Put down the soda. Mm-hmm. You know, And it, it's interesting where people, and we have this sort of like, we act like it's optional. And I think um, it's optional to go exercise and be in nature. No, it's not. It's optional to care about your environment. No, it's not. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it, it's an interesting parallel how it's like, we we have these superpowers of cognition that make humanity at least more powerful than other species on the earth. But it blows up in our face all the time. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's it's hard to acknowledge every day because we just get so wrapped up in things. But um, you know, we live we live in walls, and we live in a digital world, and we live inside of ourselves so yeah. much that. You know, if you don't get outside of yourself, it, it's really, or at least just outside, yeah. it's it's, and connect with the world. You just get kind of um, lost and frustrated, and, and I think it does. I mean, I I don't know as much about it as you do, but it does affect your your chemistry and your mental health, and you know, it, it kind of just if you don't get out of it or try to make an effort to do it all the time, then you really start to. Well, in habit formation, right? Every 50,000 times you do something, that's your new way of doing it. Right. And 50,000 times of being disconnected from action, you'll forget how to act. Mm-hmm. You know? Or you just you think that that's easier when it's really not. I mean, yeah. it's not 
hard to give yourself 20 minutes a day to do something that Sure, you'd spend you'd spend more thinking about why you don't have time to do it. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. Good deal, well, Sarah. You've been awesome. Thank you for coming on and give us giving us your time. What would you like people to take away that are listening to this? Like as we wrap it all up, what sort of closing message, neat little bow, would you have them walk away with? Oh, thank you. Um, thanks so much for inviting me to do this. Um, I, I guess I would say that. Honestly, just having having conversations like this are really positive, and I think that um, I would just encourage people to 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 think big, you know, to to be active in, in their thoughts and in their actions, and to I mean, even if you if you can't change the world, I mean, I think it's acknowledging and, and being aware and having conversation and, and trying in whatever way you can. That's that's amazing. I mean, not. Not everyone can do everything, but we can all try to survive and, and try to be good humans. Sure. I guess yeah. just thinking about it, talking about it is good, so thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. It's our calling to provide information and inspiration to help people achieve happiness, self-mastery, and better lifestyles in any way we can. But I'd like to take a moment to remind everyone that though I am a licensed professional counselor, these podcasts are not sufficient to count as clinical intervention nor advice. Please contact a local professional if you find yourself experiencing distress that does not improve with a good and simple routine. And finally, we're striving to improve in all that we do, all the time, and as such, we'd love your feedback. If you want to connect with us further, please do so at paragoncounselor at gmail.com or facebook.com slash paragonwellness.